There's a story in the suttas of the Buddha uh, being sick. And it's nighttime and he's with one of his monks, uh, attendant monks. And, um, and I kind of love the stories where the Buddha is very human you know, sick and at night. A very distinctive image. And um, he asked this monk uh, to recall the seven factors of enlightenment and to speak them to him. There's something very poignant about that image of the, it's almost like a, the Buddha asked to, to be told a bedtime story, kind of is the image I have. Like, but tell me about Virya and Sati and today, tranquility. So the Buddha goes on to say, I, I do not see even one thing that, when developed and cultivated, leads to the abandoning of the things that fetter so effectively as this, the seven factors of enlightenment. So today, uh, Pasadi, tranquility, calm, you know, even when things are going really well, it's super intense being human. Have you noticed this? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we all like act like it's not a big deal (laughs) to be human. You know, like on in the outside and just like everybody's just doing their thing and pretending <laughs> like, well, it's no big deal, I'm just human. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a big deal. It's such a big deal, it's so intense. It's so intense. And it can feel, uh, you know, it can feel like like being in a kind of blizzard in a way. One of the ways that the, this realm, the human realm is described is that it's like, um, it, at least the, the, the struggle side of it is that it's like we're being uh, samsara, this world is a kind of bombardment that the world is, is touching our senses all the time. And even when we try to zone it all out, something is still being stimulated in us. And uh, that makes our existence intense. Now in in our distraction, you know, in the distraction of the, that is much of the human condition, we actually don't fully register the intensity of what it is to be human. 
but then we sit down for even a minute, even one minute, and we know. And there is something in us that longs for peace. Sometimes it almost feels like the nervous system longing for the Dharma, longing for a way of of modulating the intensity. And tranquility, peace, even just a little, can feel like coming home. Even just a little can puncture the bubble of intensity. Now ordinarily to manage intensity we kind of pile intensity upon intensity. We try to manage one intensity with another. We have a long intense day and so we eat extra or whatever we whatever. And it's natural, it's like uh, totally, totally sympathetic and understandable. And yet we get in the habit of just piling one intensity upon another. And this becomes our life. And we keep our foot in a way on the gas pedal, just chasing one intensity, trying to modulate up and down all the time. And this is, of course, fatiguing. This fatigues the heart. It's said that uh, that agitation and restlessness in its gross forms and in its subtle forms are really quite pervasive in the human condition. And in fact, in the kind of lore, uh, the agitation, restlessness doesn't, uh, it's one of the last forms of suffering to go. It's a really, uh, we could say, deep attainment not to have restlessness. And that sounds right to me because uh, we're almost always subtly waiting for something. There's, there's almost always, even in meditation, when we know we're supposed to be letting go, there's this, uh, this subtle kind of leaning forward, just waiting for something, waiting for 
something to almost save us, like waiting for some kind of redemption. And our practice, as was said, is like waiting for nothing. Now, our path, the Buddhist path, is, you know, is usually characterized as the, the middle way, the middle path. And typically that refers to the path between two extremes, two extremes that are to be avoided. So self-indulgence, self-mortification, two extremes, and then we find the middle path, right? But so often in the Dharma, uh, we're also actually balancing wholesome factors. So the middle path is the, the balance between not two extremes to be avoided, but two wholesome factors that have opposing energies. So on the one hand, there's, you know, effort, energy, uh, piti, right? and on the other is tranquility, right? samadhi, equanimity. And so tranquility has this important function of being a kind of balancing factor to the energetic side of the practice. And it's likened to, to the cooling of a hot place by, by rain. You know, we ask often for you to, you know, you hear meditation teachers like open, open to your experience, right? Include it in the heart, welcome it in awareness. Yeah. But, um, you know, opening to more intensity when the mind is already kind of crispy is a tricky thing, right? Right? It's like, are you sure? I'm supposed to open to more. I'm already kind of frazzled. Yeah. And, you know, practice, we use the metaphor of digestion. It can feel like we're digesting. And sometimes it's like uh, the meal is too big. You know, like the life, it's just feels like too much. And we get uh, hyper aroused. And when, when we are hyper, you know, over aroused, everything feels different. There's much less space actually to open to anything, to include anything. And this state, we could say, of hyper, hyper arousal 
um, it makes it feel like there's something wrong with the world, even when maybe it's okay. There's something wrong with conditions, even when maybe it's okay. So this is how we negotiate this is, is important. And this is part of the role of tranquility. Uh, Suzuki Roshi described mindfulness in this very, very beautiful way. Um, we called it a, a soft readiness. A soft readiness. You can almost feel some of the coolness in that. But from the place of hyper arousal, it's, uh, there's no space to welcome more. There's no space to welcome more of life. And so we try to foster calm, tranquility, stability. And we do this by keeping things as simple as we can here on retreat. Like all of the kind of rules and uh, routines and signs and procedures, all of it is actually designed to sort of reduce complication so that we can move through the day without a kind of, without a trace, just uncomplicated. But the mind will not have that. <laughs> it's so used to complexity and drama and planning, even when it's totally unnecessary. So you know the experience, like sometimes I'll be on retreat and I have to do, you know, maybe I have to do, maybe it's a long retreat and I have to do laundry or I have to whatever, yeah, even just get, get a meal or something. And uh, I approach that task as if I'm like, landing an F-16 fighter <laughs> fighter jet on a battleship. <laughs> it's not an exaggeration. I'm like about that careful with like, all right, we're going to just, yeah, first wash your hands. Definitely wash your hands before you get in line. And then you just left hand, you know, it's just orchestrate. It's just complexity abounds. It's like, the simplicity, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Jack Cornfield, uh, one of his his students, was in an interview, a practice discussion, and she's describing this like mysterious state to him, and and uh, they're like trying to puzzle it out, and he's like, "Is, is it unpleasant? Is it, you know what what's what's the and they're like going back and forth and back and forth. And then at some point she goes, oh, I think I might be calm. 
Trappist monk Thomas Merton says, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to the violence of our times. So here we... Uh, do what we can to let the silence work on us, to let the, the simplicity work on us. And tranquility has a, a kind of a contagious effect. You know, like Nikki was talking about the kind of ripples of happiness through social networks. And tranquility, very much that way too. I sometimes think about uh, years ago when I was doing psychotherapy and would see somebody and they'd be in some kind of really hyper aroused kind of frenzied state and at first there's a little kind of intimidating in a way. And that state itself is contagious, right? And so there's some sense of like the urgency of fixing, of intervening, of making change. But if I had enough awareness just to trust that uh, just as hyper arousal is contagious, so too is stability and tranquility. I could actually feel like I could offer in a sense, uh, like that they could actually sit in, in, uh, in my mind, sit in the lap of my own mind. And if I could stay still and unintimidated by the suffering in the moment, that that kind of tranquility would spread, would be contagious. And without doing anything, things could settle. And so in that situation, it's as if the other person is, is using me, in that situation, using me to help regulate themselves. And here, maybe we use each other. It's so beautiful to see you sit and settle, to start to, you know, to taste the the silence and stillness. It's like getting more palpable as the retreat goes on. Maybe we need to look at the sky or the trees. 
the Buddha said that uh, we develop uh, develop the the seven factors through careful attention and spiritual friendship. We can lean on each other in that way. We can lean on the the edge of the container to hold us. In our meditation practice, some some ways of focusing tend to be more soothing than others. And so, um, in general, yeah, the breath is helpful. Uh, but uh, a, a couple senior teachers have commented that for, they feel like for about one in five people, the breathing is not such a great object. And if there's some real anxiety, uh, it may be there's other, there are other f anchors that are helpful. But you can explore really emphasizing the exhale and feeling the exhale broadly across the body, the kind of ripple of relaxation across the body as we breathe out slowly. And it can feel like, uh, yeah, as if the whole body is breathing. We can listen for the most distant sound. And really attend to the endings of sound. really the endings of any phenomena. The arising is what evolutionarily gets our attention. We need to know if this stimulus is okay. But attending to the endings, the endings of things, the cessation of something, can be helpful. So this was discussed yesterday morning, the, the visual field for some of you may be very helpful and just finding a place to rest the visual attention that feels good. That has even just a subtly soothing quality We can use very gentle kind of mental notes, S spoken silently in your own mind in a very gentle way. This is a kind of way of inducing some calm, some equanimity. Yeah. It's like how many times can our anxiety hear the note like feeling 
feeling before it settles. Now sometimes we don't use mental notes to to denote a, a small experience. Sometimes it's actually noting a bigger experience. And uh, on rich, in retreat practice, there's one mental note that I consider uh, really important to have in our tool belt. And the mental note is, I'm having a meltdown. Um, uh, this is a meltdown. Yeah. Meltdowns actually go kind of undetected for a while, or sort of like half detected, but never fully named as what they are. But in the silence of retreat and in the intensity of the, the environment, uh, when there's like less friction in the mind, the mind just sometimes goes, you know, uh, it can be really helpful to know, like, okay, that's what this is. And one part of the mind then stands outside. Yeah. There's like, even if it's just like one pinky in awareness, it's like, I'm having a meltdown. I have a friend who, who will give himself a kind of, um, massage his face often before he before he sits, sometimes after. And we might do this, we might rest the hand on the face or the heart. We investigate this phenomena uh, really the the it's the urge to make something happen. Yeah. It's that sense of waiting on something, the urge to make something happen. And uh, this path is confusing because we talk about the seven factors, we talk about concentration, we talk about insight, we talk about enlightenment, we talk about uh, samadhi, all these things. And what's our relationship supposed to be like to those things? And it can actually come to feel like um, we're supposed to be, we're kind of waiting on these things. We're kind of trying to manufacture the next moment. We're trying to engineer the next thing. But the greed for concentration is no more dignified 
than my greed for pizza. It looks so much more dignified. I would like some concentration. Yeah. I would like a third slice of pizza <laughs> made of the same thing. The same, <laughs> same leaning, yeah. And so uh, maybe you find that you're leaning in towards concentration, or towards being a good yogi, being a good Buddhist. There's an act of becoming. There's a way in which we're placing ourself in time and our redemption is somewhere else. So Ajahn Sumedho, uh, as I talked about, uh, about being enlightened rather than becoming enlightened. So the quote uh, from actually from Amaro, from one of his students, uh, uh, it is not about doing something now to become enlightened in the future. This is totally wrong. This kind of thinking is bound up with self and time. Be awake now. Be enlightened to the present moment. It's in that spirit that I, I said something like, uh, like, please don't turn yourself into a self-improvement project. You know, where we feel like, okay, we come to retreat, we're going to get under the hood, going to, whatever, replace, repair, yeah. And it's not that healing, letting go doesn't happen. It's not that the future never comes. It's that we want to be careful with how we pick the self up as an object to be fixed. Because that is itself a recapitulation of suffering. That is trying to fix clinging with clinging. And so we can look what in this restlessness, in this lack of tranquility, what, what is being held to? What future are we manufacturing? You 
very early in practice, I got the instruction to to sit like a dying person. That was the that was the meditation instruction. And I didn't know exactly what to make of that and what there are a lot of ways in which that might be valuable. But one way of interpreting that is uh, sit without a future. What, how would we sit if there were no future? How would we sit in this moment if this moment was, was the moment we were to live forever? That nothing came next. How would we sit? As tranquility uh, develops and takes, dials down the, some of the intensity of the human condition, um, there's a particular phenomena that starts to maybe become more evident. The notion of self starts to become more vague as we settle and settle. We could say the self becomes a less fixated, less solid, more vague. This is a neurosci- neuroscientist, uh, Bruce Hood. Uh, each morning we wake up and experience a rich explosion of consciousness, the bright morning sunlight, the smell of coffee. As the slumber recedes into the night, we awake to become who we are. The morning haze of dreams and oblivion disperses and lifts as recognition and recall bubble up the content of our memories into consciousness. For the briefest of moments, we are not sure who we are. And then suddenly, I, the one that is awake, awakens. We gather our thoughts so that the I, who is conscious, becomes the me, the person with a past. The memories of the previous day return, plans for the future reformulate. We glance at the mirror, we take a moment to reflect. This is who we are. And so maybe you know that experience from the vagueness in the morning or some other experience where it's almost like we don't quite 
remember who we are or we've stopped reminding ourselves who we think we are for a moment. Tranquility can be like this, can be a gateway into some of this insight into anatta, not self. Because uh, it's the investigation is that uh, that what we've been guarding all along is a phantom. the mind starts to get more quiet. In the sense of standing guard at the gate of the me within me. That depends on a certain state of arousal. And as we get more tranquil, The self gets more vague. The philosopher Dan Dennett said that uh, he likened uh, the self to a center of gravity, which is not actually a thing that exists, but it has functions. It's not actually a thing, though. And what he said was that the self is the center of narrative gravity. You can almost feel that kind of uh, the way the narrative creates the sense of center point. the ground within the body, the ground, the center of the being. And the Buddha says that's more experience. What you perceive as the ground is more experience arising and passing. And as we get quiet, tranquil, It's like that ground starts to get more vague. And so these teachings, uh, all the teachings are linked together, but uh, tranquility is quite important in, in understanding what uh, is liberating about these teachings on not-self. Now, 
Aristotle asked, uh, what's the good to which all other, to which all action aims, aspires? What's the last and highest good? What's the good for which that serves no purpose other than itself? You know, money serves, buys pleasure, which maybe buys happiness. What's the, what's the last thing in that chain? The Buddha said, uh, peace. I was, uh, this is several years ago, I was at, uh, was participating as a student in a day long at Spirit Rock and it was a day long on, uh, on love, you know, and uh, the lovey side of love, I would say. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> It was like, yeah, true kind of Marin love, <laughs> love fest kind of scene. And uh, yeah, then they, uh, the teachers, both of whom are dear, dear people to me, friends, and they, uh, they got us lined up. I don't know, it was maybe a hundred or some, 150 people. They got us lined up in two rows, you know, facing one another. And so it was like, whatever, 50 or 75 people just looking at each other and they formed a tunnel, right? Uh, and they were maybe, I don't know, six feet apart. And the procedure was uh, each person would peel off one, a one at a time from the top of the tunnel and they would be blindfolded and they would walk down the tunnel and each person, each of the 150 people would whisper some kindness, love in their ear. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I, uh, it, and I remember it was like, there was this one woman and she, she comes down the, you know, I'm wait I'm in the waiting, you know, I'm, I'm the one with the, without the blindfold right now, she's coming down. And I remember feeling like she was sitting right in front of me. And I remember thinking like, oh, this, uh, She's like really into this, like she's really into this practice. You could kind of feel that there was something going on inside of her. So she's blindfolded and I whisper in her ear, I think you're falling in love with the Dharma. And she squeals. You know? <laughs> yeah. And it, and actually she, she now, she's, it's years ago, she's now at Spirit Rock, yeah. But so, 
so it's a hundred fifty of the you know of this. And when I walked down, some people like just said like vague, really like like may you be happy or something kind of vague, you know. But some people, for whatever reason, had like. I think I had asked one question to the teachers, but they had like picked up like deep things about my psychology somehow. (laughs) And a bunch of the people said these very perceptive things to me, like both about, you know, about my like joy and also suffering and, and, uh, and at the end of this whole thing, it was just like this total frenzy of love, you know, like so effervescent, so bubbly, like so intense, you know. And it was like you couldn't get any more love in a room and it was really deeply satisfying and beautiful. And there's something in the heart that just longed for peace. That longed just for nothing to be stimulated. It's, it's really peace, a deep tranquility is the only state as I can tell, that in no way fatigues the heart. It doesn't mean we have to have it all the time, but we can come back to it. We can see how the world looks from tranquility Norman Fisher, when you actually enter the path and go down the road a little way and then wake up one day and realize to your surprise that you're actually committed to this. When that happens, a whole other life comes into view. You find that you've formed your life literally around the practice and you actually begin to forget about the life you thought you wanted, the life you thought you were making, the life you were hoping for, or the life you thought you should have been having. Instead, practice becomes your life, and life becomes your practice. Practice is no longer something you do to enhance your life or help it along. It is your life. One day, you kind of realize this and you lose the life you thought you wanted or the life you thought you had. But this is very liberating. This is really great. It's wonderful to disappear into your practice. It's wonderful not to have to worry anymore about being somebody 
or something which is such a struggle. And you no longer have to work overtime to avoid life's difficulties. People work their entire lives to avoid life's difficulties and they're never successful at that. You can give up that effort altogether. You don't have to defend or protect yourself anymore. This is great. I can't tell you how great this is. It's not dramatic, not colorful. It's not a big deal. It's very subtle. Maybe nobody even notices. feels so good to be with you in the silence. 